Well, thank you so much for coming today. I'm glad you're online, glad that you are with us in person. Uh, what a great day. What an incredible day yesterday was. The weather was amazing. I found myself working too much out in the yard, and then now I'm, I'm all sore, taking the ibuprofen and everything. I'm sure some of you have done the same, right? And uh, you think, well, this is going to be great. And then after, after a day, you're kind of like, oh, why did I, you know, why did I do, do all that? Um, so we have this opportunity today to listen to God, to hear what he has to say. We're finishing our series that we are doing, Standing on God's Promises. We want to stand on God's promises. We want to, him to touch us, him to transform us. Uh, we found at the end of the book, we want to wait on God's promises well, one of the things is we were studying 2 Peter as I was going through it, and I got to chapter 2, I found there's a lot, a lot of 2 Peter that's mentioned again in Jude. In fact, you look at the similarities between Jude and 2 Peter, and they're numerous. And in fact, if any of you are students and you've used a plagiarism checker and you know you're going to get kicked out of school if you plagiarize somebody else's stuff right Jude wouldn't have made the cut <laughs> he would have been kicked out for sure so just know that as you're reading second Peter you really can't read it without understanding also Jude now I got to tell you I have never heard anybody preach on the book of Jude and as I was preparing this week I was thinking why have I chosen Jude it's got some tough stuff in there. It's got some things that are a struggle there. But here's the thing about Jude. He wrote for a reason. And he tells us what that reason is. And in, in, in verse uh, 3, he says, I changed the letter. I was going to write about salvation. I was going to write about it so that you would know about salvation. And I changed my mind. I couldn't write that letter. Notice what he says. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation... I found it necessary to write to you, appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. That word contend carries the idea of an athlete at an athletic competition and that they are contending, they are wanting to win. Well, why has he changed his mind here? Who is he writing to? Who is this guy named Jude? It's not, hey Jude, the Beatles, right? Different Jude. This guy was a brother of Jesus. Didn't believe in Jesus. We see that in the Gospels. And then later came to faith. We see him in the early part of Acts. He and his brothers and his mother in the upper room, they had all come to faith. Here were some people that began to believe and Jude was one of those. One of the brothers of Christ, James also in, in the New Testament, another brother of Christ. So here are two brothers that, that are brothers of Jesus, brothers with one another, leaders in the early church, sacrificed their lives for the sake of the gospel. And he says yet, I couldn't write that letter I wanted to write to you. I wish he would have written a follow-up letter and written that you know, let me talk about our common salvation. But he didn't, wasn't able to do that. He wanted us to contend for the faith because, and then he goes on in verse 4 and following and talking about certain people. He talks about these certain people that were, were beginning to creep in unnoticed, he says, uh, uh, who long ago were designated for this condemnation ungodly, people who pervert the grace of God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. There's a lot there. 
These certain people he continues to talk about in verse 8. Yet in like manner, these people. In verse 10 he says again, but these people. In verse 12, these are, and he begins to talk and describe them. And in verse 14, it was about these that Enoch, seventh from Adam, prophesied. Verse 16, these are, and so he's giving us a description of who these are so that we can identify them. We can know who they are. Why? So that we can be safe in our faith secure in our salvation so that we don't give up our faith so that we don't fall away and we need to take notice we need to do something about it and so he gives this problem and at the end of the book he gives a solution I haven't shared this in a long time but a number of years ago I uh, I went fishing and I went fishing, and, and uh, uh, it was early in the morning. It was about 6 o'clock in the morning, and it was up in the mountains of New Mexico, up near Angel Fire in a little place called Ute Park. And Ute Park, New Mexico, just a wide spot in the road. If you blink or sneeze, you've missed it. You know? Or if you have your COVID mask on, you might not be able to even see it hardly. You know, sometimes those things kind of block your vision a little bit. But, I mean, it's just one of these places. And we, my folks were there, they, they, for years they had a trailer there and, and they paid $10 a month just to leave it there in the off season and $100 a month to, to have it during the year. When they were retired, man, that was a cheap way to live. Turn off the house in, in Midland and during the summer and, and uh, uh, go, go live up in the mountains for six months. And, and so every summer I would go and visit them and we would spend some vacation time with them. And so early in the morning, I always loved those early morning times, standing and hearing the water of the stream. That's all I could hear. I couldn't hear anything else, just the water of the stream going under me as I'm standing. And sometimes I'd have waiters. This time I was standing on this little bridge. It wasn't very long. It was probably about from this to here. And, and I'm standing right about in the middle of the bridge. And I found a little hole. I, I drop in here. And it goes across. And there was, there was a little hole with trout in it, just right on the other side of the bridge. And I'd already caught two that morning. Man, it was fun. I was just enjoying myself. And you know how you have this feeling that somebody's behind you? <laughs> when you're out in the middle of nowhere and you have that feeling, it's usually not a good thing. And, and, and I turned around and there was a bear. And he was behind me and he was on the bridge. Now remember, the little bridge is kind of like from here to here. He could have just reached up and gone, and that would be it. And I had the smell of fish, trout, rainbow trout on my hands, right? So I'm sure I was, I looked like, you know, a juicy morsel. And I looked back and I instantly just threw my, my fishing rod on the bank, left it in the hole just in case, but threw it on the bank and walked across the bridge. I didn't even look back. I just walked across the bridge. There was a fence, a chain link fence that was kind of sagging a little bit. And so I just jumped over that one, cleared it by about six feet. And uh, I walked a little ways and turned around. And the bear was right where I had crossed the fence. And I was staring at him. I didn't know you weren't supposed to stare at a bear. You know, you're supposed to look down and kind of show deference and all that. And I'm sitting there looking at it. He's looking at me. And I just kind of go, Shoo. you don't shoo a bear either. I just, just say, and you do that to cows, maybe horses, but bear, and I'm over there, Shoo. You know, shoo the bear. The bear walks a few steps and there's a big pine tree. I mean, these things are 30, 40 feet tall. He reaches as tall as he can and he just does this, scrapes his nails on it. And you think, 
why is he doing that? Well, he's demonstrating he's the biggest bear and that he's the strongest bear. And I'm sitting there th- looking at him going, you be the biggest bear. <laughs> uh, no challenge here. I'm not going to go and, you know, try to cross scrape your deal. And so I watch him as he's wandering off into the woods. And when I can't see him anymore, I jump back over the fence, grab my fishing pole and try to catch that fish that I was getting a hit on, right? <laughs> But I was a little, you know, kind of looking over my shoulder a lot after that, you know, and, and I didn't know if he was going to come back, kind of looking around. And one of the things that you realize in a deal like that is it didn't take me that long to realize I'm in a place of danger, go to a place of safety, and I knew I couldn't outrun the bear. By the way, bears on a short distance can go 40 miles an hour, and a short distance, on my best day, I can't do what 20 miles an hour they say that humans can run. Now that day I might could have you know, made 20 or 21 miles an hour. I had the adrenaline flowing. And, and what I realize is, is that those times in our lives when we're in a place of danger, we need to recognize it's danger. And I think that many times we don't recognize the dangers around us. And we don't realize we're in a place where we could, we could give up our faith because we're not aware, we're not alert. And that's why Jude is so important because he's making us aware. He says, here's what to look for. Here's how you'll know that this is not a place that you need to go. He says, these certain people, one, they creep in so they're sneaky. They've got a purpose. Why are they sneaking in? Why are they creeping in? They have a purpose. Their purpose is to change your mind. The purpose is to, to transform you to thinking like they're thinking. And how are they thinking? They're ungodly, it says in verse 4. That means that they don't have a sense of God, that God's not a part of their lives, that they may be an atheist, they may be an agnostic, they may be someone who just doesn't want God around, that they are someone maybe who used to go to church and now don't, but God is no longer a part of their reality, no longer a part of their life. That's how you recognize them. They don't have an interest in God. They pervert the grace of God into sensuality. What does that mean? The grace of God... Implied in the grace of God is assurance of salvation. Now, I've heard a lot of people say, I don't believe in assurance. And I say, why? And they say, well, because if, if assurance is correct, then Christians would just live like the devil. They'd live any way they want to. And I said, yep, that's the accusation. That means that you believe what Scripture talks about. And you think, what do you mean? Because in Romans, Paul is saying, don't make any mistake Shall we sin so that grace may abound? That's his question. He asked it in Romans 6. He says, meganoita, which is the strongest way you can say it in the Greek, which means never, never, never. That's not what the intent is of grace. The intent of grace is that we now no longer live in fear and we can live in the love of Christ and we can live like he wants us to live. It's implied that I have assurance of salvation and these guys know it. And they're saying, oh, well, now you can just live like you want to. You can, it's a, it's, it means license for you. Here's the thing you need to know about grace. Grace makes a great covering for our sin. It's a terrible excuse for our sin. That's not the intent of it. To excuse us, to cause us to want to live however we want to live. And, and we pervert it when we think of it in those sense, in that terms. Since they deny our only master and Lord, you think, wow, how do they do that? Do they just say, I deny Jesus? Well, it's usually not that bold. Usually it's more subtle. 
Usually it's, well, I, you know, when I think of Jesus, uh, I just think of, you know, he was, he was a great person, somebody whose example we should all follow. Oh, really? That's all he is, just an example. If he's just an example, there's a lot of great examples. And in fact, there's some things that Jesus wants me to do that I'm kind of thinking, well, I don't really want to do that. Have you ever done that? You read, read a verse that were, or had something where Jesus said, do this, and you're going, oh, I don't want to do that. And yet he's my Lord, and so I don't have that option to say no to Jesus, right? If he's just a good example, I can say no to him. But if he's Lord, if he's really who he says he is, then I don't say no to him. I just say, how high, how far, what is it that you want me to do? I'll do it no matter how hard it hurts, no matter what it means. I mean, think about that. There are those in our world that say Jesus was just a good moral teacher. If he was a good moral teacher, then he wouldn't have called himself God. He called himself God, so he's either God or he's not. But good moral teacher doesn't fit with somebody who says and calls themselves God. How did he prove that? He rose from the grave. And so we know he rose from the grave. He proved he is who he said he is. Who did he say he was? He said, I am the I am. I am Yahweh God. I am Jehovah God. You think, well, where did he say that? He said it in, Roman, uh, in uh, John 8, 58, when he's talking to the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem and, and they're saying, uh, you know, uh, uh, talking to him about Moses and, and, uh, and Abraham. And he says, before Abraham was born, I am. Now, if he was just saying, I was, I was around before Abraham, he would have said, I was. No, he's saying, he said, I am. God is the great I am. I am has the focus of being outside of time. God is outside of time. He is the ever-present one. Time has no bounds on him. Before and after have no bounds on God. They do on us, not on God. And Jesus says, that's who I am. They took up stones. They understood what he was saying about himself. Jesus is the I am. He's not just a good example. He's not just a good moral teacher. He's not the first created being. Some say, oh, well, he was a super angel. He was created by God. And, 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 and that's why he calls, you know, son and begotten. You think, no, it means unique. He is the unique one in the universe. Called son, but always been part of our triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One God, three persons. That's who Jesus is. And whenever we say anything less than that, we're denying who Jesus said he was. We're denying Christ. And so this person who comes along may not overtly say, oh, I don't believe in Jesus. He'll change what he says about Jesus and he'll be so thoughtful and such, such, uh, stated in such a way you'll go, oh, that sounds interesting. I, maybe I believe that. And you'll find yourself drawn in by a person who is actually has no God really in their life and who perverts the grace of God. How does that happen for our culture? You know, I read an article recently that uh, talked about cancel culture and I thought I understood it, but at this article I realized I didn't really understand it completely. Cancel culture is, uh, you know, usually when we think of the word cancel, we think, oh, I canceled an appointment or I canceled something out of my, my uh, 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 
on my calendar or whatever. We just, we think of it as I stopped doing it or I'm not going to do something uh, that I had planned to do. That's not what's meant by cancel culture. And you'll see it sometimes in, uh, uh, on, on social media if you, if you avail yourself as such. They'll usually add the, the, have the word canceled with the word T or the letter T at the end of it. And when, the, when you see that, they're asking people to respond. And that response that, you, that they want you to respond with is same with a DT on the end. S-A-M-E-D-T. Same. Duh. I don't know why I get the D at the end, but um, and you may know. And usually what that means is, is it doesn't mean you just cancel an event or something. It means this person no longer matters. They are dead to me. They are unacceptable to, to culture and society. And so this canceled culture happens right away. It means that you don't get a, a chance to explain why you said what you said. You're just done. It explodes. You become a top trend and then you are uh, defiled and you are the vilest person on the planet for about three days. And it may ruin you. It may ruin your career. Um, we find that, and I see it happening to different people. They'll, they'll make a comment or a statement. All of a sudden, all these people start jumping on it. They kind of dogpile. And, and their goal is to see if they can create this cancel culture. And all of a sudden, you're the vilest person on the planet. And so what it does is it makes us afraid to say anything. It happened to uh, Justine Sacco in 2013. She tweets something that was probably ill-advised. It was ill-advised. She makes the mistake of joking about something she shouldn't have joked about. It was inappropriate. But instead of asking her to change her mind about it or whatever, she thought she was just writing to her 170 Twitter followers, right? Except people picked up on it. One guy picked up on it, had 15,000 Twitter followers and said, I can't believe this person said this. The person had just tweeted, Justine had just tweeted, gotten on a plane to South Africa. When she got to South Africa, she was already fired, vilified, and canceled in cancel culture. No chance to do anything. Why do people do it? Because they can say something hiding behind their avatar and not have to show their face. And they can jump on different issues that they disagree with or that are inappropriate. And the interesting thing about cancel culture is it doesn't make us a better people. It just makes us more bitter and more divided, uh, leaves us broken. And so the question is, is there a better way? Is there a better way that we should respond? And Jude tells us, yes, there's a better way. And we're going to get into that at the end of, of our message. But I want us to kind of walk through what he says about us. He starts off talking about believers. And he, he kind of likes the number three for some reason because he does each of these things that he describes. He uses three descriptions of. Uh, he talks in the beginning, he says, to those, here's who he's writing to, it's Jude, who's a brother of Christ, to those who are called, beloved in God, the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. So he's got the past, those who are called, and it looks in at the sovereignty of God, beloved in God the Father, looking at those uh, that our present situation, that when we receive Jesus, that we are loved by the Father, even loves the world, uh, even those who have not received him uh, or yet, uh, and then kept for Jesus Christ. And so this idea of being kept, that's the idea of assurance of salvation, that we are kept by him. He begins the letter that way, and then he ends the letter in the doxology with the same idea of being kept in him. 
In verse 24, he says, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. And there's that idea of assurance that we are assured of our salvation that Peter talked about, reserved in heaven, that this idea of assurance is to give us comfort, to give us joy, that he can bring us to the Father. He is not incapable. God keeps his promises. If he saves you, you are saved. And you can't lose it. Well, he goes on and he, and he, and he says, uh, may peace, mercy, peace, and love. So you get these three key ideas that, uh, that he begins to start with. And in fact, mercy, he starts the book with. We see mercy at the end uh, on verse 21. Waiting on the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Uh, save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others, show mercy. So three times at the end, he talks about mercy. He starts, talks about mercy at the beginning. And so this idea of mercy is key to his book. He bookends this, this book with, uh, with that idea of mercy. What is mercy? I don't get the punishment I deserve. Growing up, I would have loved to have more mercy. Right? I was the problem child. I was the one that was getting in trouble all the time. My brothers and sisters said, yeah, we learned a lot from just watching what happened to you. You know, strike a fool and the wise are instructed. Well, I was not the wise in that parable, uh, in that proverb. And so here it says mercy, peace, this idea of quiet confidence, quieter hearts that we sang about, a quiet confidence in the midst of chaos because of the truth, and then love. Knowing that we are loved, one of the deepest things that we have in our being, that we long to be loved by someone else. And what we worry about is that if somebody, if you really knew me like I know me, you wouldn't love me. We all struggle with that. And it's one of those reasons that keeps us to ourselves. It means that we don't share some things about ourselves because we think if you found out this, you would hate me. You wouldn't love me. You wouldn't care about me. And the one who knows us best loved us most, right? He knows everything about us and loves us. It's a love that frees us from ourselves. Powerful things. Well, he gets into this discussion as we look into this in verse 5. He wants to remind us. He wants to remind us that here are these kinds of people. In fact, he, he even says at the, in verse 18, in the last days there will be scoffers. Uh, following their own ungodly passions. We were told this would happen. We were told these people existed out there. And we think, yeah, but I, I want to be nice to them. I don't want to call them anything mean. And so I don't, no, we got to identify who these folks are. And I don't have to call them anything mean, but I need to know who they are because their goal, they have a purpose for you. And the purpose for you is that you believe what they believe. And they're going to put incredible pressure on you and it's just going to increase and we're seeing it in our world. People are getting angry at you if you don't hold to what they hold. It says, now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus who saved a people out of the land of Egypt afterwards destroyed those who did not believe. And you think, oh, now what was he talking about? Where, where did all of a sudden he's going? He's going to the next series of three. This next series of three and I don't have a slide on it, I forgot that slide, is uh, Egypt, and then these angels, and then Sodom and Gomorrah. So he gives us three different things that he's getting ready to talk about. And what he's really answering the question is, there is a judgment coming. 
There is a judgment coming. And in fact, in verse 14, we see as he's quoting uh, a, a book that we're, we are uncomfortable with. He says, behold, the Lord comes with 10,000 of his holy ones to execute judgment. And you go, wow. Now, you notice I said he quotes a book that we're uncomfortable with, right? Did you catch that? What's he quoting? He's quoting First Enoch. What? First Enoch? And you start flipping around and you say, okay, where is that one, you know? And it's not in there. Well, why, why is he quoting it? I mean, it was because of that verse and because of the one where he talks about Michael, the archangel, that most people don't preach this book. It's one of the reasons most people don't read this book. Because, in fact, I would imagine that for some of you, these two pages, 3 John and Jude, were stuck together. You go, had to pull it apart, Right? Oh, there is a book called Jude. I didn't know that was a little thing was in there, one little page. When I first came to Christ, I didn't know anything about Scripture, about theology. I was raised in a church that didn't use the Bible. We, we just used a lot of different... Uh, we used the Bible some, but we didn't carry our Bibles to church. We had a book of common prayer, and we used that. We had a lot of things that we said, and creeds and different things that we learned but there was a lot I didn't know four years later I had the opportunity to lead my little brother to Christ so he came to Christ on a Sunday and um, uh, I was all excited and I was I was teaching him about the word of God and how important it is for our lives and we were on a bus uh, we were in an orchestra together I was there for two days and then I, I had headed back to Austin uh, to continue uh, my schooling and and, uh, and so I was talking to him about the importance of the word and why the Apocrypha is not included and some of those things. And, and as I was saying that, there was a guy that was seated in the seat in front of me and he was from a more liberal uh, school that he was going to and he, was, he turned and said, well, you know, Jude quotes, you know, first Enoch and quotes the assumption of Moses. And, and I'm like, and I tried to give him some answers and somebody else on the bus, you know, I didn't feel like I did a very good job. And this other guy that was on the bus said, man, that guy really smoked you, didn't he? Thank you. <laughs> Just what you want to hear, right? You know, that you did a terrible job and be, have it confirmed. And so it's like, whoa, I didn't have an answer for him. How do I answer this? Because I think I made the statement that nowhere in the New Testament was the Apocrypha or, or, or pseudepigraphal books, which is another term for, for uh, some that were even beyond the Apocrypha, uh, were, were quoted and he, and he goes well it's quoted here I didn't have an answer and then I realized duh later he doesn't say that scripture does he and Peter was very clear in his book to say Paul's writings just like they do the rest of scripture he was calling Paul's stuff scripture and Paul quotes Luke's gospel and says as the scripture says I mean they had no problem saying this is scripture Jude does not call either one of these books scripture. And we know that in the, in the New Testament, there are other things that are quoted that aren't scripture. Paul quotes a number of different poets that are Greek poets. Uh, that, uh, and he doesn't say, as the scripture says, he just says, and as some of your own poets have said. Uh, and in fact, we know that he quotes in Acts 17, Cleanthes and Eratus. He doesn't call them scripture. In 1 Corinthians 15, meander. 
He calls, he says, uh, he doesn't call that scripture. In Titus 1, Epimenides, when he says all Christians are liars, your poets have said that. You know, when I'm preaching, I've quoted a lot of different people, C.S. Lewis and even, you know, uh, others, uh, people that, um, uh, Winston Churchill and others. I haven't called them scripture. You know I'm not quoting scripture, right? Hopefully. If you don't, we need to talk. Uh, because we, we quote things because they fit our culture and people understand those references. This helps us to know who's Jude's audience was, by the way. He had a Jewish audience that understood these Jewish writings. So he had a different audience in mind than 2 Peter, even though it looks the same, even though it seems like he plagiarized, he was writing to Hebrew Christians that were probably living in Jerusalem because he, he identifies himself as the brother of James, even though he could have said, I'm the brother of Jesus. He knew they knew who James was. James was the leader of the church of Jerusalem. And I think that's why he makes that reference. I think that's why he's quoting these things. Because these are things that they're familiar with. He's, and he's basically saying, even our own writings are saying this. You got the scriptures, you got even our own writings saying the same thing. And so he gives these, this focus here on Egypt. On angels who do not keep their own domain. That's a difficult one. Probably a reference back to Acts 6. That's one where scholars have looked at Acts 6 and, and begin to wonder, is Acts, I mean Acts 6, in Genesis chapter 6, in Genesis 6 is this description of the sons of men coming to the daughters of uh, or sons of God coming to the daughters of men and they cohabit with them and, and there's this like, whoa, what is going on here? Well, apparently these angels left their own domain, abandoned their proper abode and so they are already being judged. They are already judged. That's his point. That's Jude's point. They're already judged now. There's other demons that are roaming around but those, they already got an immediate judgment. And so those in Egypt who didn't believe, they wandered in the wilderness and they died. They were judged. Angels in Acts 6, they're already judged. They're not even waiting until the end of time. Sodom and Gomorrah, already judged. Judgment is happening. Judgment has happened. We have a God who judges us when we don't believe, when we don't remain under authority, his authority, when we begin to live any old way we want to in our own sensuality. He says, judgment comes. But then he goes on and in verse 8 he says, yet in like manner these people also relying on their dreams defile the flesh, reject authority, blaspheme the glorious ones. In other words, they're blaspheming those who are angelic beings. And that's when he gets into the assumption of Moses and he, he quotes one of their works. And he says, but when the archangel Michael contending with the devil was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. We see a shorter version in Peter, one that's a little easier to digest when he talks about this idea of uh, the glorious ones. He says, whereas angels, this is Second uh, Peter chapter 2 and verse 11, it says, whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. We don't have most of the assumption of Moses that has been lost at work. And so we're not sure exactly what he's referring to, but we do know that this point is, 
that there are angelic beings, there are demonic beings, and to say that they, are, they don't exist, that, they're in, uh, that, that there isn't a spiritual battle going on. I mean, these are ungodly, and so they would, they would say, hey, well, I'm scientific, there's no spiritual realm, there's just the, the natural realm, there's just the realm that we can see. No, there's the unseen realm that's beyond what we can see. And it's happening, and we shouldn't just presume that we can just speak rudely to, to angelic beings, to demonic beings, even to Satan himself. The Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understanding instinctively. Woe to them, for they walked in, and here's another uh, three things that he talks about. As I talked about, he loves the, the idea of three, right? He says, the way of Cain, Balaam's error, and perished in Korah's rebellion. And so you look at these three things. What was Cain's deal? What was his problem? It works without faith. You see that in Hebrews chapter 11. He had the works. He brought the sacrifice. It was the wrong sacrifice, and it was without faith. That was a problem. Balaam. He was in it for the money. He was willing to curse Israel if God would have let him. And he was willing to take Balak's money to do so. Well, we know people who, all their religious types, and they, all they're about is taking people's money. And then Korah rebelled against authority. And we already saw, he even described that they are those who uh, uh, reject authority as in, in verse 8. They reject authority. And if they reject authority, they reject God's authority. How do they do that? They basically say, well, my God. And, and, and all of a sudden, I'm creating a God of my own making. And my God doesn't like this, or my God likes that, or my God would never do that. And all of a sudden, I've created God in my image, and I've just rejected God's authority over my life. How do we recognize them? He gives us six statements. I've only got five of them listed. I missed out on uh, getting the sixth one in there, Wandering Stars. But he says, we're hidden reefs, verse 12. They're hidden reefs. Well, a hidden reef is a reef that's underneath water. And, and if you're a captain of a ship, you better know that there's a reef there or you're going to wreck your ship. You're going you're gonna to crash the thing, right? You're going to wreck your ship. We got to know that in our own lives. Where are the hidden reefs? Where are those who are trying to, to lead us in the wrong direction? Shepherds feeding themselves. They don't care about the sheep. They don't care about other believers. They don't care about you. All they care about is feeding themselves, satisfying their own needs. Waterless clouds. I know yesterday I was kind of hoping for a little bit of rain. I saw the clouds coming over and I knew we only had like 1% chance of rain. It could happen, right? didn't happen and it's disappointing so much promise and then nothing fruitless trees leave you hungering for more leave you hungering for true true riches for true spiritual life wild waves it creates chaos in your faith wandering stars that aren't good for for navigating by they they lead you in the wrong direction they don't have what you need and they leave you uh, longing for more it was about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, and we read that Jesus is coming back, and there's judgment coming. So what do we do? Well, he tells us in verse 17, he says, but you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostle of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said that there's going to be scoffers, 
Verse 19, it is these who cause divisions, worldly people, devoid of the Spirit. In other words, they don't have the Spirit of God. They're denying Jesus, don't have the Spirit of God, don't believe. He says, but you, beloved, and then he tells us what to do. He says, building yourselves up in your most holy faith. How do you do that? Building yourselves up. He doesn't go into a detail about how to do that. In Ephesians 4, Paul tells us how, a little bit about how to do that. In Ephesians 4, we see that as he's talking about the body of Christ and how it's supposed to operate, he says that um, the gifts are given to the body of Christ. And here's the reason for the gifts. Verse 12, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. Ah, here's the word, for building up the body of Christ. So how am I built up? By being around you. How are you built up? By being around me. We're around one another. We share our gifts and we're, we're benefited by that. And as we do that, then we grow in Christ. And in fact, we grow in Christ to, as he says, to, uh, to the unity of the faith, the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Whoa, that's where we grow to. So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. That's what Jude's talking about, right? And that's how we recognize those. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, in other words, we're working, that you're involved in, in people's lives and you're intentional about your faith, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So there's that idea of building up. How do we do it? We just get involved in someone else's life and we share the truth with them. That's important. When we think about our church, three key values, abide, belong, and impact. This, is, this comes under that idea of belonging to one another. There's that idea of abiding that he talks about in next when he says, keep yourselves in the love of God. And he's talking about our sanctification. It's not that same keep in the terms of salvation. Jesus keeps you. Your salvation is secure. What is this keeping? It's abiding in Christ. It's John 15. That we abide in him and we bear much fruit. And then the idea of mercy, waiting on the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. But then we not only wait for his mercy, we exercise mercy. And it doesn't mean you have to have the gift of mercy. You may not feel like the most merciful person in the world. You may feel like the least merciful person. It doesn't matter. We're supposed to be merciful. Jesus tells us to be merciful as our Heavenly Father is in, in Luke chapter 6. And here he says, have mercy on those who doubt. In other words, there's going to be people that are struggling because these teachers... These, those who lead them astray, he says, 23, save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others, show mercy with fear. In other words, you help people not fall into the trap, but you don't fall into it yourself either. Hating even the garment stained by flesh. And then he gets into the doxology. We live our lives that way, where we uh, abide and we belong and we impact the world around us and we help them to understand the truth. It says, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of, of his glory with great joy to the only God our Savior through Jesus Christ our Lord be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. And you go, whoa, that's the two verses that I've seen before. 
on Facebook like last week. I haven't seen much of the other verses that Jude talks about, but you can't get to hear unless you understand what he's talking about. That we are a people who are, are, are building up one another. That means we've got to become vocal about our faith, verbal about our faith. I went to lunch with a guy uh, uh, this week, and he, was, uh, uh, he did something kind of interesting. Contending for the faith, but in a way that, that, that Jude tells us. He says, I want you to contend for the faith. That's what he said early on. And if you think, that's what his purpose is for us. Contend for the faith. And we think that means I, I got to get in your face and I got to tell you what the truth is and I got to respond on social media and, and, and say some, some mean things, right? So that you understand. No, it's not it. If that's what you're walking away with, time out. I loved his approach. His approach was when the waiter brought our food, he says, you know, um, we usually pray over our meal or is there anything that we can pray for you for? I thought, wow, that's brilliant. What a neat way to just kind of enter into the, and he had already asked him about himself a little bit earlier on in the discussion. And, and so he didn't have really anything to share. He said, no, he said, I'm not really a church going type. And, and he said, well, that's all right. We'll just pray that, you know, we, we know you're around a lot of people and we'll pray that you stay safe from the COVID virus. And, and we'll just pray for you and, and, and you can join us if you want, or if you need to get back to work, that's fine. And he says, no, I'd like to join you. Wow. We didn't expect it. Didn't see that coming. And so he stayed and, he, and, he, and, and we got a chance to, to, to pray for him and, and, and thank God for him. And, and, and it was interesting because it kind of changed the, the reaction and interaction that we had from then on from the time that he was waiting on us. And of course, you want to leave a decent tip whenever you do that, you know. <laughs> and so, you know, we left about double the tip and, and uh, we wanted him to know, hey, we're not just about, you know, Okay, that we gave you the good stuff and now we're not going to tip you kind of thing. Uh, and, and so we tipped him well. And then he, my friend began to tell me about something that he did with his son. He says, what we do is he gave his son a $100 bill and he has a $100 bill. And he says, every time that they go out to eat together, they pray, God, who do you want me to give this $100 bill to? And, and so he was with his son on one particular occasion and his son said said, uh, Dad, I, I think I'm supposed to give this $100 bill to this waitress. And he says, okay, son. He said, that's great. And so he gives the $100 bill to, to, the, to the waitress. And she started bawling. And she began to tell them that her husband had just left her the week before. And he had taken everything. I mean everything. She, he, she was left with nothing. And she didn't even know how she was going to pay her electric bill that, that week. And she needed to pay it that week. And she was short by around 100 bucks. And so she was weeping. And I was thinking, that's the way that we contend for the faith is we love people to Jesus. I have, I've, you know, I have prepared a lot. And I've talked to a lot of people where I've gone into the arguments and discussions for the existence of God. And I can tell you what, I've seen more people love to Jesus than ever argued to Jesus. We need to be a people who contend for the faith by loving our neighbors well. Father, we come to you today and we thank you for your love to us. We thank you that you are a God who loves us well. You love us completely. You love us with a love that, that doesn't let go, that keeps us for yourself. Father, we are in awe of you. Like we sang about it before this message, we are in awe of you. 
that you would love us like that when we don't even love ourselves that way. We despise some things about ourselves and yet you knowing those things love us still. You knowing those things show us mercy. You don't give us what we deserve. The punishment that we deserve. You don't give that to us because Jesus took it. It's not, the Christian life's not about do, it's about done. Jesus said it is finished. You have finished the work. And all we have to do to enter into that is to receive Jesus. And then his death applies to us. Lord, we, uh, we are humbled by you. Thank you for loving us in that way. Lord, I pray that you would help us to take these words to heart, to find encouragement today through your words. Father, I pray that we would rejoice with the doxology at the end of this letter, that we know that we are kept for you, that you're gonna, you're gonna uh, present us before the Father one day. And Lord, I pray that in, in the meantime that we would contend for the faith by loving our neighbor well. That we would abide in you that would be kept in your love that we would build up one another to belong to one another and that we would impact this world for you Lord help us we can't do it on our own we can't change a person's heart and life but you can and you've told us how to do it help us to do it your way and not our own because your words are life. They give life. They give freedom. True freedom. Lord, we love you. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.